This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Were there long-term consequences for Mary, who carried the Son of God in her womb? We can actually say something about this, not just theologically, but indeed medically. We are eventually going to talk about that on today's show, after we talk about the stunning connections between a mother and her unborn child, the role of religion and spirituality in healthcare, and the training of medical professionals today. This is Church Life Today, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. I'm Leonard DiLorenzo, and my guest today is Dr. Kristen Collier who is a practicing physician and assistant professor of internal medicine at the University of Michigan. Dr. Collier is also the director of the University of Michigan Medical School's Program on Health, Spirituality, and Religion. She has a close relationship to us here at Notre Dame, a rarity, of course, for someone from the University of Michigan, through her service as a Life Fellow at the Notre Dame Office of Life and Human Dignity in our own McGrath Institute for Church Life. Dr. Collier, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Lenny. I appreciate the opportunity to be here today. So as I mentioned in the intro, you've developed a program at the University of Michigan Medical School on health, spirituality, and religion. Now, as you were studying to become a doctor, could you ever have imagined yourself dedicating part of your professional life to the role of spirituality and religion in healthcare? No, I mean, when I think about my time as a medical student, I was not a faith-based person and actually was probably, I would say, an anti-theist. Hmm. Um, so to be here today as a faculty person at the University of Michigan, the director of a program on health, spirituality, and religion is quite an amazing place for me to be. So when I was in medical school, I was very attuned, I think, to bio-reductionist material, materialism-only uh, model of education, right? So People are um, receptors and symptoms and diseases, molecules in motion, mm. and I was really focused on people's biology. Um, rightly so. I mean, I think in medicine, there was a lot of biology to learn, and physical diseases obviously um, take up most of our attention. But then later on, as I was exploring Christianity and teaching a course, actually, to undergraduates at the University of Michigan, it was called Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, Themes of Medicine in the Old New Testament, I became aware of a model Cicely Saunders developed. Cicely Saunders is considered to be the mother of palliative medicine. She has a model called total pain. Her model of total pain is a circle that shows that people experience pain or health or wellness in four intersecting quadrants, physical, emotional, social, and spiritual. And I had this awakening at that point that, and I'm a general internist at this point too, and I'm learning this, that I had only really been, I've been seeing half my patient. So hmm. I've been seeing the physical aspects and I'm really good at diagnosing physical disease and pretty good at diagnosing and managing mental and emotional um, needs, but spiritual sickness, spiritual distress, social distress, I had no idea what that even was. And so I became very motivated to not only increase my competency in those domains, but to make sure that the medical students and residents with whom I interacted also were aware that people are not just molecules, molecules in motion, and that people are whole persons that can suffer and be well and experience disease and wellness in domains that are outside the physical. Um, so yes, this is, this is a totally 360 for me compared to where I was as a trainee. Mm. And I'm thankful for, obviously, for the change that I've had in terms of my education and awareness of these issues. Yeah, you said, I mean, you had to develop these competencies yourself, right? So this wasn't right, right. part of your training 
then as you were becoming a medical That's professional. right. That's right. So right. So the, when I had this awakening, I was already a faculty person. Mm-hmm. So I had to learn these things on my own through reading and some faculty development that I saw down on my own. Um, and actually medical school actually has done a much better job. I think medical education is more focused on social and um, spiritual aspects. The AAMC, which is the Association of American Medical Colleges, actually has a set of spiritual competencies that they uh, want medical students to learn. So things are better now than they were when I was a student, but still, I think conversations that go deeper about the why, you know, the why in medicine, why are we doing this? Um, talking about, um, you know, medicine is really good at giving us like the how, but not so much the why. So the deeper discussions around these topics to make them sort of come home for our trainees, we, I, I think, can always do a better job of that. And that's where my program comes in as we aim to have deeper discussions available through talks um, for the medical students and people at the university, uh, faculty and, and house staff on topics that intersect health, spirituality, and religion, and do faculty development and fund research projects. So an opportunity to go deeper um, than just a lecture or a curriculum that is um, lifeless. So this is changing the way in which medical schools go about training their future doctors, right? I mean, it seems to me right. that this would require a significant opening of the imagination for a medical school about what it means to make a a professional in the medical field. Are you seeing signs of that? I am. I think think when we think about doctors, I mean, we are not just technicians taking care of complex machines. And we, I think, are unusual. We're we're at a wonderful, I'm at a wonderful university in that we are unique um, with regards to other medical schools across the country, and that, as far as I'm aware, we are the only secular um, medical school, public medical school, that actually has an integrated program within the medical school on health, spirituality, and religion. Most of the other schools that have this are associated with a divinity school, or they're more of a research silo, or they're a faith-based medical school. So we are really, I think, um, cutting edge w- with our program at Michigan, mm-hmm. um, and I'm really thankful to the leadership who've welcomed this program, and for the the donors that have funded this program as well. Now, you alluded to this already, but you were not raised Christian. That's right. But you became a Christian, and not long ago, from what I understand. And you were already well into your study of science and your becoming a a medical professional. Mm -hmm. What was that like for you? What did that mean for you as a person of science, as somebody who's becoming a doctor, to also, in your personal life, but Mm -hmm. maybe not just your personal life, coming into the Christian faith? I mean, it's been life-changing. I think that's an understatement, Um, really. Professionally, you know, the science, again, God is the author of all things, chemistry, biochemistry, physiology, et cetera. And we're just discovering and uncovering what God has already created. Mm -hmm. And, you know, every people like, well, as you go deeper, you know, into science, how does that look to you? And even the deeper that you go, just even studying one receptor, right, on the top of the adrenal gland, you just marvel at God's design. And out of my faith now, I think professionally, I have developed what I call, which I feel has been really helpful for me professionally and personally, a theology of medicine. So I think it's really important for all people um, in their vocation or job to have a philosophy of their job mm-hmm. or a theology of their job. And my theology of medicine now gives me a sense of coherence in terms of things that I advocate for or in my practice. So in briefly, my theology of medicine is informed by my Christianity, 
by Christ um, is sort of around three basic topics. The first topic is nonviolence. Uh, the second thing is that I see now my patients made in the image of God, and the person sitting in front of me has inviolable dignity made in God's image, and that gives so much more meaning to the day-to-day interaction I have with my patients. That's sacred space, and it's it's a heavy, serious thing. Um, it has meaning. And the, the third thing is, is that you know, matter matters because of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So when I take care of people and their bodies, matter has significance. So I think of people's bodies in a different way because of the incarnation. And personally also, obviously, because of my faith, now I have a I think a sense of peace around what I see, um, which has been very helpful for me as, as, as I think about preventing burnout in my professional space. You're listening to Church Life Today and Redeemer Radio. We are talking with Dr. Kristen Collier, Assistant Professor of Internal Medicine at the University of Michigan, where she is also the director of the University of Michigan Medical School Program on Health, Spirituality, and Religion. This theology of medicine that you were talking about, is this something, again, that you have developed on your own? I mean, it's. It, I think any of us who are listening to it know that this isn't just some maverick idea that you've had, right? But is this something that you've seen elsewhere, or do you feel like you're still in a, in a sort of space as a medical professional to have to develop your own competency here, too? So I remember the first time I heard that phrase. Actually, one of my colleagues at Michigan, Christian Verkler, who has, I think, I believe this undergrad is in theology. He's a plastic surgeon, impedes craniofacial surgeon. He teaches a first-year seminar to students um, on the philosophy of medicine. And, mm-hmm. and I was like, what does that even mean? And so I came home, I talked to my husband, Tim, about it. And He's like, I think you need a theology of medicine. So he's actually, he's helped me shape it. Um, mm-hmm. And he's very, he's an avid reader and a Christian. And he's helped me. And I've been able to shape this talking to fellow Christian physicians like Dan Hinshaw and um, other people in my circle who've helped me think about this in a way. It's, it's shaped over the years as I've grown my faith. But it really helps me, I think, when I'm speaking to students about human dignity and the work that I do. So one of the things I do, for example, is I've been involved with Drs. Hinshaw and some of our palliative care folks are going to the women's prison in, in Ann Arbor and uh, training prisoner palliative health aides. And people are like, well, why do you do that? You know, and again, this comes out of my theology of medicine, that people have dignity and everyone has dignity made in God's image. And this is, drives our care for the people on the margins, the incarcerated person, the refugee, women and prenatal children. So it really helps me have a sense of like purpose and coherence in what I do, whether it be patient care, advocacy, curriculum development, justice work, that kind of thing. And, and talking about these issues with students. It's really helped me, I think, in that way. Before, I was, we all care about a lot of issues, but mm. how can we care about things in a way where we're focused and where there's underlying first principles that, that drive this work, really? Speaking of students, I had mm-hmm. one of my former students who is currently a medical student elsewhere. She knew I was going to be talking with you, and she wanted, she asked if I'd ask you a question. So sure. if you don't mind, yeah, I'm going to no, pass sure. that question along from her, from uh, my sure. former student, Maggie. She asked... Mm-hmm. How can someone effectively and practically decline participation in aspects of medical Mm. care that are contrary to Catholic doctrine or one's conscience, especially, and I think she's thinking in her case, for for those who are trainees and who don't have the luxury of rank or status to add credence to their position? So how do you decline certain practices in the medical profession? This is a very big topic, and it gets to a couple bigger topic. So I think the first issue is I think sometimes people are like, how dare you bring a worldview to medicine? You know, everyone brings a worldview to medicine. Mm -hmm. Um, And as we think about 
diversity, equity, and inclusion. It would be hypocrisy to say we can bring all these worldviews and not accept people who come from a faith-based worldview to their profession. And there's this idea that we're having, obviously, big conversations in the medical space about what you're alluding to, which is conscience protection. Do we see a physician's conscience as an attribute in the profession of medicine? And what is the role of conscience? And you know, in my opinion, and I know s- several people uh, agree with this, is that a physician's conscience is his or her most valuable tool. And to think about a profession where a physician's, we don't make space for physician conscience is very frightening. Mm-hmm. Um, when you think about an encounter, every encounter is an ethical encounter. And if you think about especially violent regimes over the past 100 years that had had state-sanctioned violence where physician conscience was not allowed and physicians were involved in atrocities, that's a dangerous place to be. And I think when we think about this concept of patient-centered care, I love, of course, patients are the heart of what we do, but really when we think about that phrase, we're ignoring the other party in this encounter. So I prefer the term actually relationship centered care. There are two people, dare I say, in a covenant together in the clinical encounter both have moral agency and moral status, and how can we balance sometimes two competing theologies of medicine in a way that's productive? So it gets even to a bigger issue, is that as a society, have we even come to an agreement of what healthcare is, or what is health even, Mm -hmm. right? And what is sort of this common good, and can we have effective medicine, healthcare, if we don't have that? And for people like Maggie, right, I mean, this is an ongoing issue, and I think, you know, medicine is a moral endeavor, and we should make space for a physician conscience, and you never deny a person, but you always have the right to deny a procedure, um, but you never deny a person. And not to sugarcoat this, but but to sort of say this in a, a blunt way, we know from the scriptures that it says that, you know, Jesus says, right, that um, I will show them the cost that they will, that, that they will bear, right, for bearing my name and for there will be a cost often for standing up for what is right. That's spoken about in the scriptures repeatedly. I think for trainees, I think practically um, understanding that there will be a cost and understanding that the best way forward oftentimes is going to be done in relationship with others who have previously walked this walk. So having mentors, having advisors, and sometimes you're at an institution that's smaller, maybe you don't have um, the connection. This means going outside of your institution for mentorship and for advice and guidance, because sometimes bravery in this space comes with advanced stage. It's very difficult. How have you taken to that role of mentor? Because I know even just from the the few students that I've had, I've had a number of students, but the few that are in medical school, they they know of your work and of your reputation, and they're elsewhere, but they look to you in a public setting. So that's another role that you're taking on as this mentor of somebody who is asking these deeper questions, has this broader understanding of health, is more than hospitable to a Christian worldview. What has that meant for you? So I feel very privileged to be able to have any role in mentoring students or giving them advice. And I welcome, and I have talked to students who have found me either through Twitter or through connections that are at other institutions that feel a sense of relief when they connect with somebody else who is like-minded. And I think when I became a Christian and I became more public with my faith at my own place, and people have been incredibly charitable and hospitable, 
at my home institution, other faculty and other students came forward and said, wow, you know, it's really refreshing to see someone who lives with their faith as something that you can sort of be witness to at work. Because I used to think that to be a legitimate scientist or be taken seriously at my place, um, that I just had the sense that I had to leave my faith at the door and I could be a religious person on Friday or Saturday or Sunday and a doc Monday through Friday. But wow, to think that I could be a faith-based physician Monday through Sunday, that is the kind of personal, professional, integrated identity that's going to give me like the strength I need to carry forward in this in this career which is incredibly challenging but I also when I talk to students and people who I'm giving advice right I I tell them which is the truth you know I'm still working this out myself right Mm -hmm. I was only baptized a few years ago and (laughs) I'm new to all of this so I I we all want to have a growth-minded mindset but I am especially sort of green and sort of fresh in this space which I think you know we're all trying to just do the best we can together. And I, I appreciate the opportunity to work with students. Now, you've spoken publicly, including at a public panel that we hosted mm-hmm. here at Notre Dame, about the change in your views, more particularly about abortion. Right. So on the this didn't this wasn't right alongside your movement into the Christian faith, but I think right. as you talked about, this came later. The views changed right. later. How have your views changed, and how did that change come about? So it was quite dramatic. I mean, again, even to sit here and say now that I considered myself a, a pro-life feminist, I, you know, if you would have told me I would be saying that even three years ago, I'd have been like, no way that you don't know what you're Did talking Did you even think about. that existed a pro-life no, feminist? No, I had never heard these terms right. before, right? I'm a pure scientist. I was a biology major. Uh-huh. I went through science all the way. So th- these were terms I had never heard. Education sort of was not as robust as it should have been. But you know, it came about, I would say, again, this may sound cliche, but I, you know, I became a, a Christian and then was doubling down on my beliefs as a pro-choice person for many reasons. And I think like any dehumanizing ideology, it succumbs to the same temptation, right, that you try to see the undesirable person as a non-person and thus disposable. And I think I had a narrative around the prenatal child as not even a person and something that and could be easily um, discarded. And so I was very entrenched in that view around a lot of emotionality, probably. And then what happened is I just remember clear as a bell one day where I was in my back room and I was about to go into the garden and I had this sense that, you know, this was like a voice that said, like, Jesus Christ does not want you killing babies. And I just had the sense of shame, like whatever feelings I may have about this, this isn't about me anymore. And this is this is wrong. And I need to really have an open mind about what's at stake. And around the same time, I had the opportunity to invite Charlie Camosi as a visiting professor to my program. He spoke at my program as one of the lecture series um, guests. And even when Charlie came, I remember I was quite awful to him, actually, at a, at a dinner with a group of faculty. And I said, how dare you even stand there as a man and talk to me about this subject? You don't know what you're talking about. And he was so charitable with me and, and encouraged me to read his book, Beyond the Abortion Wars, and then entered into a dialogue with me that was really fantastic. And I was able to change my mind, I believe, of course, with God's help on the concept of abortion. I, I believe that abortion is rooted in violence, violence towards women and violence towards her prenatal child and also violence for the people that are performing the abortion. So it's a complete, again, change in what I used to believe about this. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Church Life Today on Redeemer Radio. We are talking with Dr. Kristen Collier, Assistant Professor of Internal Medicine at the University of Michigan, where she is also Director of the University of Michigan Medical School's Program on Health, Spirituality, and Religion. 
just that note you make about uh, Charlie's kindness to you Mm -hmm. reminds me of something in Augustine's Confessions when he first comes to the Bishop of Milan, Ambrose, who is ultimately the one who draws him forth towards his conversion. Mm -hmm. And the thing that he says about Ambrose, the first thing that struck him was Ambrose's kindness to Mm -hmm. him, right? Because here are these... There's an unfinished worldview in Augustine and in some ways clashing ideas, but it was the sweetness of Ambrose's rhetoric and it was the substance of what he had to say, but the sort of doorway into all of that was his kindness first. So Charlie Camosi, the 21st century Ambrose, how about that? Now, your understanding of the fetus, a prenatal person, changed along with that. And I know you've taught on this and spoken so eloquently about it. I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of an insight into the relationship between a woman and her child, her her not yet born chi- child, the prenatal child. Sure. I mean, I think the relationship between a mother and her prenatal child is even more profound and beautiful than we previously imagined. And as you know, I could I could talk about this topic for a very long time. But I just want to highlight a couple of things that highlight the connectedness between mother and child. So one thing that I've been thinking more about recently is the connection between, um, and I've been reading about, is between a mom and baby with a connection with voice. So on studies that have been done in premature babies, we see a very special way that babies respond to mother's voice compared to other sounds or even other female voices. So one study looked at babies who were born prematurely, they were in the NICU, and Um, One group of babies was exposed to mother's um, voice and heartbeat, and the other, the control group of babies, were exposed to just ambient hospital sounds. And after the study time was over, the babies who were exposed to mom's voice had a different size in their part of their brain, actually, auditory cortex, actually. So the mom's voice actually influences the size of part of the baby's brain. Wow. And that shows a connectedness that's amazing. And there have been other studies that show that in premature infants, they have some instability in their breathing. They can have more what's called apnea, where they stop breathing, or bradycardia, which is the heart rate slows down because of their prematurity. And when they had the babies exposed to mom's voice compared to other sounds, the mom's voice caused the baby's heart rate to stabilize. They had less episodes of bradycardia, less episodes of apnea. So again, the fact that mom's voice can affect the way that your respirations are, that your heart rate is, is amazing. There's also another really cool study that um, did electrical tracings on babies' brains and premature babies to see what was the difference in babies' brains um, and how they lit up when they heard mom's voice versus another female voice. It was the, a female nurse who brought the baby into the lab. And when the babies heard mom's voice and the other female voice, both parts of the brain would light up for um, both women with just re- speech recognition, right? But when they heard mom's voice, the other hemisphere of the brain lit up that's responsible for language acquisition and motor skills. And that part of the brain didn't light up when it was just the female nurse that spoke. So it can shows that mom's voice in particular has a special way of activating baby's brain to help her learn acquisition. It's probably the primary driver for language acquisition in the baby and just highlights this connectedness that reveals God's design that shows a connectedness that's quite beautiful. And then briefly, one other connection that we've talked about at various panels is the concept of fetal maternal microchimerism, where babies' cells, and we know in any relationship, it's this bidirectional mom cells too, cross the placenta. Baby cells cross placenta into mother and help her um, in a way that's 
beautiful. So we know some of these baby cells come into mom and start acting like the tissue into which they integrate. It's called fetal maternal microchimerism. And these cells help mom heal from injury. They can help her heal from cesarean suction, help make collagen in the cesarean suction's um, incision. They also signal lactation at the breast, which helps mom and baby. And then later on, some of these cells have been found in mom's breast and have been um, shown, they think, to help reduce mom's future risk of breast cancer. So even if the baby is delivered physically, there is a remnant of the baby in mom's body that's helping her. And normally, foreign cells right, would be destroyed because of immune system activation because they're an other as a, in a way. Um, but the fact that they're not and they are allowed to survive and then integrate shows, again, some type of cooperation at the level of the cell that speaks to a radical mutuality at a cellular level that is really highlights our relational biology, which again, we would expect since God is the author of biology and he's relational. Now this is, I mean, there's so many things about this that are remarkable, but one of the remarkable things is that when we think of a woman carrying a child, mm -hmm. we think about that care going in one direction, that the child is dependent upon the mother mm. and is receiving mm. benefit from the mother. But what you're saying is mm. even after birth, there mm -hmm. is, on the cellular level, a remnant of the child within right. the mother. And right. that remnant is not just right. waste. It's not right. to be disposed of. It actually is healing or beneficial no. for the mother. Isn't that so beautiful? Yeah, I mean, I, it would be one thing for some remnant of the baby to come into the mom and you would carry that around as a gift and that maybe material would be inert in some way. Mm -hmm. But the fact that this genetic material comes in is not just inert, but actually acts and helps heal and reduce the risk of future malignancy. And that is quite profound at the level of the cell that baby is still helping mom for the rest of her life. It's quite beautiful. Amazing. We're drawing towards the end of our time here. So let's Let's maybe get to one of the most amazing things of all. So, and I've heard you speak about this a little bit, and I've seen you write about it, but on this point of the relationship of the child to the mother and the remnant benefit or care of the child for the mother mm -hmm. at the cellular level, mm -hmm. what does this mean for us as Christians who, who know, who believe that the Word of God took flesh in a woman's womb, in Mary's womb? How do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think as Christians, this scientific fact should be incredibly moving and special to us in particular. I mean, as you alluded to, obviously, the placenta through which these cells cross is housed in the uterus or the womb is a layperson's term. And the uterus has special significance for us as Christians because the logos or the word um, became flesh and through the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ in a womb, in Mary's womb. So the womb is redeemed and the uterus is redeemed and sacred because our Lord and Savior came through a uterus. But then we think about Jesus Christ being born of a woman, um, but then if we think about this concept of microchimerism, that these cells, that Jesus Christ's cells, his cells came across the placenta into Mary, into the Blessed Mother, and even after he left, Physically, he was still in his mother in a way that really glorifies her position as the glorious Theotokos. Mm. There's a sort of Eucharistic relationship on the cellular level in which yes. the mother says thank you to the son as the son mm. says thank you to the mother. It's beautiful. Well, Dr. Collier, we've come to the end of our time, so thank you so much for spending your time with us here today. Thank you so much. Thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life today. And so you know, Dr. Collier is one of the Life Fellows at the Notre Dame 
Office of Life and Human Dignity, and you can find some of her writings on our journal, Church Life Journal, and some of her lectures at the Notre Dame Office of Life and Human Dignity. This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Does debt have you down? Are you worried about your credit cards, your mortgage, or keeping your car? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union can help. Our people are trained to be financial physicians. They can give you a checkup, help you to heal, and then stay healthy. Don't be embarrassed, it's why we exist. When your body is sick, you go to see a doctor. When your finances are sick, you go to see the friendly folks at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits?